Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk about the phrase critical race theory, which is being attacked in Republican-led legislators all across the country and mischaracterized as a blueprint for teaching kids somehow to hate white people or America. We're going to talk about what it really is and why it's key to understanding our history and our future. Then we'll hear about a wonderful Juneteenth event that's taking place this weekend at the Tuxedo Project. It's all next on Detroit Today, but right now to the news from NPR. Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. Critical race theory. It's a term that, at least as of late, we're hearing a lot. It's being thrown around, especially by the GOP, which has been working in several states to, quote, ban the teaching of critical race theory in our schools. What many Republicans say is that critical race theory is itself the teaching of racism, in this instance against white Americans, and that it somehow fuels a resentment and hatred of America. Today, we're going to deal with those outsized mischaracterizations of critical race theory and talk specifically about what it is and what it is not. But before we do that, I think I have to kind of stop to acknowledge that maybe you're someone who's been hearing this term but aren't really sure what it is and why it has become such a flashpoint in these legislative debates all over the nation. I think it's fair to say that for a lot of people, whether they support the idea of critical race theory or not, there's just not a lot of genuine understanding of what the term means, where it comes from, and how it influences our discussions of historical and present racism in this country. The term has become a cover for everything that's seen as race-conscious thought and a rallying point for those who believe that the best way to stop racism in America is, well, to just stop talking about it. But what the opponents of this framework fail to recognize is the real danger of regulating American public education to cover up centuries of our own country's oppressive and racist foundations. Without ideas like critical race theory, how can we come to reckon with this country's past or how can we cast a different future? That's where we begin the conversation today, and my guest is someone who thinks an awful lot about this subject. Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries is a professor of history at Ohio State University, where he specializes in civil rights and the black power movement. He is also the host of the Teaching Hard History podcast. Dr. Jeffries, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. It's really great to be with you. So I want to start by just laying out some basics. I, I, I really believe what I just said in the open, which is that 
lots of people uh, who oppose or even support critical race theory just don't know what it is. So can you give us uh, just a thumbnail sketch of what critical race theory actually means? Well, certainly. And, and, I, and I think you're right. It's a term that's been bandied about uh, that most people would be unfamiliar with because it's a term that comes out of law schools that is some 30 or 40 years old. So it's, it's not something that is just in the everyday parlance of folk. But I think in a nutshell, uh, critical race theory is not particularly complicated. It simply is a framework for looking at the world, for looking at the United States past and present that says in order to understand America, in order to understand America's American society, in order to understand America's uh, legal system and economy, you have to take race and racism seriously. Uh, it does not say, it, it, and what's also so interesting, Stephen, is that it actually, critical race theory posits uh, and is accurate in saying that race itself is not real. It's biologically meaningless, but it is socially meaningful uh, because it has been constructed long before America was even a thought in the mind of, 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 of Western Europeans. It was constructed to create hierarchies. And because it was constructed to create these social hierarchies to justify the enslavement of, of African people, uh, it has shaped and been embedded uh, this idea of race in our society. And so therefore, in order to understand how we have evolved, how we have developed, how we have uh, come to be today, then we have to factor in the way that this thing called race plays out, both individually, personally, also structurally, and the way that racism, this, this discriminatory uh, aspects of society play out as well. Yeah. So, so there's a book on my bookshelf at home uh, that I've had for a long time. Uh, it's uh, Faces at the Bottom of the Well uh, mm -hmm. by Derek Bell. And, and uh, I, I remember when that book came out, I believe it was in the 90s, uh, and reading it and, and kind of thinking about the, the concepts in there and then going and finding other things that Derek Bell uh, had written. Uh, but, but talk about Derek Bell, his work, and how critical his thinking is to critical race theory. Well, Derek Bell, of course, was one of the um, leading proponents, leading advocates of, and, and leading uh, sort of conceptual developers uh, of this idea of critical race theory. Um, a, a lawyer, a civil rights lawyer, um, taught for a number of years at, at, at Harvard University, African-American. Uh, and of course, one of his classic texts, a popular read, in fact, is Faces at the Bottom of the Well. And you remember uh, one of those great, one of the great chapters, one of the great stories that he offers is the space traders. Uh, this wonderful story that, uh, a thinking story uh, where these uh, uh, aliens come to uh, the world, come to America and say, listen, we will solve all of your environmental problems, all of your resource problems. All you got to do is give us your black folk. <laughs> and it, it, it triggers this debate uh, within American society. Like, oh, no, we wouldn't do that. But maybe we should. Right. And, 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 and it, it taps into this idea of like, you know what? We can pretend all we want that race isn't real. We can pretend all we want um, that 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 racism still doesn't impact our lives. But the, when we think of these sort of scenarios and situations, it uncovers, it reveals the ways in which race and racism still inform, still shape the contours of our lives, 
not just impacting black folk, but also impacting white folk as well. And so Derek Bell was, I mean, just a phenomenal thinker, one of many uh, who said, look, we can't put on blinders if we want to, as you were saying at the opening, if we want to make this place better, then we can't ignore, we can't pretend the way something so central to our existence in America continues to impact our lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, So let's talk now about the current debate over critical race theory, which I I have been fascinated by uh, principally because uh, it it seemed to have come out of nowhere. I mean, it's not as if people or black people were sitting around thinking or talking about critical race theory a whole lot before we started to see uh, uh, GOP-led legislatures across the country saying, hey, this is the problem and we got to we got to get this out of our schools, quote unquote. Um, uh, talk about this attack and why this is such a flashpoint right now. Now, I know that it's not really about critical race theory because what they're talking right. about isn't that. Uh, it, it, what they're really talking about is is race consciousness. It's 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 the idea, uh, the very idea that that we've got to acknowledge uh, race and racism and their role in our history in order to to to, to sort of chart out a different future. But but talk about the ways in which this is being portrayed uh, by the GOP and and why it just entirely misses, uh, misses the point. Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, this isn't about critical race theory because those who are um, offering it as a, as, 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 or criticizing it um, really are not articulating what it is, uh, as, as you just pointed out. And, and in fact, I, I think this, I mean, one, this ties into sort of the race-based culture wars that we've been dealing with, you know, for the last half century post-1965 uh, uh, post-Voting Rights Act. So, so there's a, this falls into line with a tradition of using race to organize and to politically animate, animate racists, uh, whether conscious or unconscious. So, so we can understand kind of the politics of, of how it might be useful for the very reasons that you were talking about. Anybody uh, who talks about the importance of race consciousness becomes a, a, a problem for those who want to ignore it in order to preserve the status quo. But, but why now becomes the question. And it, and it certainly has everything to do with last year, uh, with the protests of 2020 uh, following the, the, the police killing of George Floyd. Because one of the things that happens uh, in, in, in May and June and July of 2020, when tens of millions of people are taking to the streets, black and white, is that folk aren't just calling for um, the uh, um, uh, justice for the victims of police violence. People are also calling for uh, an end to systemic racism. And this, this that conversation really is, is unique in terms of entering the public discourse. Now, black folk have been talking about that since black power and before, you know, the problem of systemic racism. But to enter the public discourse in that way was unique. Now, that creates a that creates a very distinct problem uh, for conservative uh, politicians, for these GOP folk. Right. Because now people are talking about systemic racism, which is which is essentially, you know, our status quo. Then the demand is for. Um, elected officials to do something about it. But if you can, if you can say that racism isn't real, then, and you can get people to believe that, then you don't have to do anything about it. 
And so this provides, this is sort of a, a, a cover uh, for p- political conservatives. If they can knock down, if they can rally people and say, wait a minute, these people who are talking about systemic racism, they are the racists themselves. And all we have to do, as you were saying before, is just ignore it, stop talking about it. Then we don't have to do anything about it. That's that's the that's the political angle of it. But the danger is that this is moved from the realm of politics and into the realm of education, into our schools. And, and, and now we're not just talking about, you know, sort of trying to animate, uh, you know, those white voters who were animated by Donald Trump's racism. We're talking about uh, purposefully and intentionally miseducating people, miseducating young people, miseducating students so that they are not demanding change to the present status quo. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the things uh, that, that really strikes me uh, about this is the similarity uh, to the controversy over the question about, uh, is America a racist country, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you had Tim Scott, the, the black senator from South Carolina, uh, in response to, to President Joe Biden's first address before you know, a joint session of Congress come out and say, America is not a racist country, which, of course, then inspired this whole argument about uh, was he right? Was he wrong? Uh, we need to put that question to lots of other people to, to, to force them to answer it. And, and it's an oversimplification of the issue. Uh, it's the kind of thing that resonates with people personally and their own fears about uh, race consciousness or, or about racism, uh, and, and misses the, the, the sort of deeper, uh, the, the, the deeper issue that lurks behind it. And, and saying something like critical race theory and saying, this is bad, this is anti-American, this is white, is kind of the same as saying, well, if you think America is a racist country, uh, you must hate this nation. You must be yeah. anti-American. No, you're right. And and the the again, it's that sort of intersection between politics and 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 racial fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, people hate to be indicted. And when you talk about America is a racist country, America has a problem of of of, of dealing with racism and always has. That is an indictment. Uh, and many people take it personal. Many white folk take it personal. Well, what does this what does this say about me? And what does this say about my parents and my grandparents? It says that y'all were born in America. Relax. I'm taking it so personal. <laughs> it's just the reality of the, of the of the of the place in which we live. You know, nobody is nobody is racist because they are born that way. People are racist or believe come to believe in racism because they're born in America. You know, social psych- uh, child psychologists tell us that children as young as five and six months old are able to distinguish people uh, by race uh, because of the cues and clues that they're picking up from their parents and from their caregivers. This is if you breathe the air in America, then you are breathing in these racial prejudices and racial stereotypes. But the problem is people get so caught up in their own uh, sort of uh, uh, their own egos uh, that they don't they can't step back and say, huh, I can see We've been dealing with this for 400 years. How, you know, what makes me so special that I can't be impacted by it? And even, Stephen, you well know, even if tomorrow we were able to snap our fingers, and this is this is very Derek Bellish, right? If we could snap <laughs> our fingers tomorrow and, and eliminate all personal prejudice rooted in race in the minds 
uh, and hearts of, of, of everyone who lives in America, we would still have race-based disparities and because they are built into the way we have structured our society. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries. Uh, he's an Ohio State University history professor who specializes in civil rights and the black power movement. He's also the host of the Teaching Hard History podcast and works with the Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center's Learning for Justice, which is committed to equipping teachers to do this work. Uh, we're talking about critical race theory, which is a phrase that we're hearing a lot in the news lately as uh, GOP-led legislatures around the country uh, attack that theory and say that it is the cause of American discord. It is teaching people, children, uh, to hate white people or to hate America, and uh, they're banning the teaching, quote-unquote, of critical race theory in schools. Uh, Of course, that's a very uh, pernicious mischaracterization of critical race theory. Uh, We're talking about what it really is, how it influences uh, everything that we do, all the interactions that we have here in America, and how it informs us about how our past affects the future that we all, I think, uh, would like to, to, to get toward. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, we would love to hear from you. Uh, give us a call and tell us what you think about this controversy over critical race theory. Uh, what do you think about critical race theory? Do you think it's promoting anti-American ideas or anti-white ideas? Or do you feel like this is an important part of understanding our history and understanding the society we all live in together. Uh, Give us a call and let us know if you're an educator or a parent uh, who's advocating for or against narratives like this being taught in our schools. We should be really clear that uh, there aren't children sitting in, in elementary or high schools right now learning about critical race theory. It's a legal theory, something something you really only hear about in law schools. Um, But, uh, of course, uh, the GOP is saying that this is something that uh, is destroying young minds in uh, in America. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue this conversation with uh, uh, with uh, Kwame, or Hassan Kwame Jeffries, uh, and we will get to your calls and your social media comments. Uh, stay tuned for more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 
WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. My guest is Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, an Ohio State University professor who specializes in civil rights and the black power movement. I'm talking with him about critical race theory, something that we're hearing an awful lot about lately in the news uh, as the GOP rallies around the idea that critical race theory is the problem with race in America, the idea that talking about racism, about talking about it in a systemic way as opposed to an individual way is the problem that we have rather than the racism itself, rather than the institutions that perpetuate the racism that was foundational to uh, this country. Uh, We want to hear from you during this conversation. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Call and tell us what you think about critical race theory, what you think about the narrative that has unfolded since last year, uh, the incredible power that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has gained in getting people to acknowledge systemic racism, to acknowledge that we have deeply ingrained uh, institutional kinds of biases uh, baked into into American society. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's start with Terry in Detroit. Terry, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning, Stephen, and to your guests. Um, guys, I just wanted to say <clears throat> I know nothing about critical race theory. It it really uh, sounds like a kind of an academic approach to how you study a particular subject, and I've not studied that per se. But knowing nothing about critical race theory, I do know that the way we teach history in the United States of America is a very incomplete picture. It's a picture from one perspective, and that perspective isn't necessarily wrong, but it definitely is not right. We've left out so many people. We've left out so many issues and so many events um, I think that's why you see people that are just so ignorant about these issues of systemic racism. They were taught this very narrow view of history that we teach in America, and they know nothing about the rest of us, and they don't have the curiosity to find out about the rest of us, and they clearly don't have friends in groups that look like the rest of us because their friends would be telling them more. So, I mean, the, the very fact that there's so many people that are ignorant of these very real issues tells us how important it is to teach differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, Terry, uh, really appreciate the call uh, and and the the comments, the really great insights there. Uh, Dr. Jeffries, uh, talk about how these things end up being taught in schools. One of the things that I think we want to emphasize in this conversation is critical race theory is not being taught in primary schools or in high schools. This is a legal theory that uh, people deal with in law school. At the same time, though, uh, critical race theory, I think, is a good guide for the ways in which we ought to be shaping uh, elementary and high school curriculums to get children in this country to, to understand history, the present, and the future, and the ways in which institutional racism uh, shapes all those things. No, you're spot on. Uh, critical race theory isn't being taught uh, in K through 12 schools, but if it was, it would be a good thing, right? Because, <laughs> because, which is the great irony. It's like stop tripping. But if it was, we'd be in a better place uh, because of the very thing that you're talking about, right? 
it's saying it, it, it's it, it's I, what we're actually saying here and, and what we should be doing is we should be talking about slavery. We should be talking about Jim Crow. Uh, we should be talking about the ways in which the black community and African-Americans not only survived uh, the, so the, um, these, these, these systems designed to marginalize and exploit, but thrive despite them. We should be talking about the ways in which our, our laws, our, our constitution, um, you know, has embedded in it protections uh, for the institution of slavery. That when slavery ended, uh, its principal legacy, white supremacy, continued on. The great danger with what folk are trying to do now, GOP-led uh, efforts, uh, is that they're not just saying, you know, hey, let's stop teaching critical race theory and so therefore we can't have a class called that in high school. What they're actually saying is we can't talk about the things that are so central uh, to the American experience, right? And now we're going to have a federal holiday uh, 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 on June to, for, for Juneteenth. And, and if some of these laws go through, we won't be able to actually talk about Juneteenth. <laughs> I mean, the, it, so, so what is, I mean, there's a certain insanity to it. But I should also, I should also just point out, if I can, um, Terry is right, who, who just called in. You know, we haven't been teaching the whole history, but it, it, but that hasn't been an accident. It's been on purpose. You know, the, the, the fact that the, the, the lost cause became so central uh, to what kids uh, learned and, and continue to learn about the, about the Civil War, that slavery wasn't its principal cause, wasn't an accident that was purposefully placed to shift the narrative. So when we're talking about we need to tell the truth about the past, this isn't coming up with something new. This is revising something, but revising something that was untrue so that our students can actually learn the truth about the past. Yeah. And and that effort to to take us away from that is is about hiding uh, hiding that that history. It's about saying uh, you know, America is not culpable for the things that we see today, the outcomes uh, that, that we all live with, which, uh, which of course were shaped by racism. And, and there is this very powerful draw, I think, uh, to that idea uh, among a lot of white Americans who, as you pointed out earlier, feel accused uh, by this conversation. Uh, this is a shortcut to saying, look, you're not responsible for this. This is, uh, this is the problem rather than a symptom of it. And that culpability, I mean, you, that, that's, so, that's so accurate because if, if, you, if there's a degree of culpability nationally, right, not even individually, again, get out your own way. We're not talking about you individually. We're talking about sort of what some of the privileges you have benefited from it, you know, but the culpability, if there's a degree of culpability, then there is a degree of responsibility, not for creation and origin, but for dealing with it in the present. Right. And, and, and so we, we see literally in the Supreme Court, you know, John Roberts, uh, chief justice saying, ah, you know, the, the racism isn't really a problem anymore. Right? right. It's just, you know, so so we, we don't I have mean, to you literally said with, that the, 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 the way to stop talking or dealing with race is to stop talking about it so much. I mean, exactly. You literally and, wrote and, that. And, if you, and, and, and by by implication, then stop talking about it and stop doing things to address it. And that's where it becomes so, so dangerous, because if you stop talking about it, if you stop learning about it, then you won't do anything to address it and it will continue. The problems generated from it will continue into the future. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here. Let's go to Susan in Dearborn. Susan, what's on your mind? 
Well, I had I made I wanted to comment because I'm I'm a 62 year old white woman. I went to Wayne State. Yay! Um, <laughs> and I've had you know lifelong friends from my college days. 36 years I've known these ladies since I was we graduated in 1982, and I was astonished because we I had a conversation with them about this subject a few couple weeks ago. And one of my friends is not even talking to her sister because her sister is a teacher and supports education of this subject matter. And um, my friend does not agree with it. She doesn't think we should teach it in the schools. And I said, but, you know, why? You know, I was just astonished. And then she said, well, because they're teaching people that if you're white, you're just crap. And if you're black, you're... Um, you put it like you're, you're, you, you're privileged to have um, rights and all this. And mm. I was like, but everybody should have rights. And then she said, but I'm, as a, as a white woman, I'm not the problem. Mm. Mm. And I could not believe she internalized it. And then I was like, but you're not even talking about the right thing. And these are people that I consider lifelong friends yeah yeah and i'm susan that, so. uh, susan uh, i i can't say enough uh words of encouragement to you to keep having those conversations with with these friends to keep pressing that issue because uh when it comes from you somebody they know somebody they trust uh, it's way more likely, I think, to, to, to resonate and to maybe inspire some introspection and some thought about how they're, how they're dealing with this. But, but I also absolutely hear your frustration um, with, uh, with those conversations and, uh, and with those people. Um, you know, it, it is difficult to, to do this because there's such a powerful, uh, is such a powerful narrative uh, around the idea that race doesn't matter. And there is a comfort, I think, that uh, a lot of white Americans uh, want to kind of cloak themselves in that says that. Uh, uh, Dr. Jeffries, what's your reaction to, to Susan's story here? I think one of the, one of the lessons that Du Bois learned, W.B. Du Bois uh, learned very early on, early 20th century, when he was uh, working at Atlanta University and producing all of this amazing work uh, on African-Americans and the black experience and black lives. And he was convinced that if I could just show white Americans the truth about the black experience, that would move them away from these race-based positions. And he came to the conclusion that <laughs> the truth doesn't matter uh, when folk are so deeply embedded, invested uh, in these ideas that not just help them understand the world, but help them understand their own lives that simply sharing facts is not enough. And so that, you know, I, I say that to say, don't be surprised by simply when, when, when those who are close to you, uh, when you sit down and have these conversations and you say, hey, look, this is, this is the history. Uh, this is what this means. This is what people are doing and aren't doing that they just rejected. We just went through a whole year plus of folk rejecting science uh, of, of, of now, people rejecting the outcome of an election. And the power of these lies to get people uh, to, to hold on to positions that simply are not true uh, is, is something that we have to reckon with. And it isn't simply going to be education that moves them off that position. It's going to be activism, which is also, which is also what has uh, these legislators uh, so, so fearful. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, Susan, again, thanks very much for the call uh, and for sharing that story. Let's go to Tim in Bagley. Tim, welcome Hi, good to the morning, show. everyone. Hey. Uh, I guess I want to really comment on what I think the person's name was, Terry. Uh, it's a very obvious and open and an honest response to say, I'm not quite sure what a comprehensive uh, study of American history, including the contributions of African Americans, would be. Well, call it the racial studies, whatever, that's fine. Don't be afraid of the word, because uh, when people start getting very antsy about what the terminology is, then they start utilizing that to divert away from what the core issue is. If there was a history book that was a thousand pages, unfortunately, all of them, 800 to 900 pages are dedicated to white American history, and a lot of it is not as honest and as open and as true as it is. For example, when uh, Mr. Uh, our football player was kneeling Kaepernick, he kneeled down to the anthem, and everybody wanted to say, oh, how ridiculous that is. Well, yes, if we are a nation that loves our country, we want to you know, give some allegiance to our anthem. But if everybody would play that on the Internet and find out what that fourth verse was saying, you would understand what Mr. Kaepernick was, was doing, and mm. that is not anything to hold anything in reverence to. And, of course, uh, Terry said something to the effect that she didn't know, but yet at the same time, American history isn't right, isn't wrong the way it's being taught in this country. It is 100% wrong. You hear a lot about white culture, but you don't hear about Aleutians. You don't hear about the Creoles. You don't hear about African Americans. You don't hear much about Native Americans and how white America negatively impacted on those people and those cultures and tried to drive many into slavery and mm. to into oblivion. Yeah. Uh, Tim, uh, really appreciate the call and and your thoughts there. You know, Dr. Jeffries, there is an irony uh, that, that I think Tim picks up on and, and Terry to some extent too, which is that we don't do a great job uh, in schools of explaining this stuff now because so much of it is omitted from the curriculum and, and the stuff that is there in some cases, doesn't illuminate uh, these points, yet you have this incredible controversy that has been whipped up uh, by Republicans in these legislatures, which has, I think, a lot of people believing that way more of this stuff is actually taught in schools than it is, uh, which, which, again, is the kind of masterful political uh, effort, I think, that uh, that the GOP has, has kind of undertaken here. They've created a problem that really doesn't exist uh, as they're describing it in, in K-12. And, and, and it's, a, it's a, an extension of a, a problem that doesn't exist at uh, uh, American universities, that they just found a way to sort of trickle down mm-hmm. to K-12, that these American universities are these bastions of liberalism, and they're just turning, you know, all students who show up at these colleges and universities into these Marxist leftist radicals. You know, that ain't happening. Uh, and just as that ain't <laughs> happening in K through 12. Uh, and in fact, as you were saying, not only are they not learning, you know, becoming these sort of radical activists in K through 12, they're not even learning this history. Because when I get them down the road from you all at the Ohio State University and we begin to talk about these things, they're like, well, what's that? And we never learned about lynching and race massacres in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, and Black Wall Street, and they wind up having, you know, going through the five stages of grief. It's like denial, disbelief, <laughs> then they're angry and upset. 
But then finally we get them to the end of the road and it's like, yo, I want to do something about this. Right. And I think that I that 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 point is what is so fearful that I want to do something about this because the status quo maintaining the status quo is, is there are people who are invested in that uh, and have deep investments in that. And as long as you can get people to look at the status quo and not think there is a problem with it, then you are able to maintain it. And in the end, that's that's the political angle. And that is also the most troubling aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Jamila in Ann Arbor. Jamila, what's on your mind? Yep, Jamila, you need to turn your radio down. There you go. <laughs> Jamila, are you there? Okay. Hello? Yeah. Are you there? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Hold on. Let me turn off my Google. Google silent, please. <laughs> Google no voice. Turned out of Google turned out of volume by fifty percent. I could barely hear you. I'm sorry. Okay, go ahead, Jamila. So there's a couple things that I wanted to say. I think one of the things that's missing out of this conversation that this is not just about Black history. Um, it's also about Native history, about Mexican history, about how all of Texas and everything was was part of Mexico. Mm -hmm. And also another thing that I think is very important to add to the conversation is that when you talk about the white supremacy culture, it triggers white people. So it's, it's and you kind of have to hold on one second. Okay, Jamila, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to move on, but I, I, I absolutely agree with uh, what you're talking about there. This is about more than African-American history and, and the history of, uh, white supremacy in America affects lots of different uh, 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 groups, uh, ethnic groups, de demographic groups, uh, and, and that also is not that also is not included in uh, in the, the things that we teach uh, in schools. Okay, uh, Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, it was really really wonderful to have you here with us uh, for this conversation. I think uh, you did a, a great job of helping our listeners understand exactly what this is uh, and exactly what's going on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the Free Black Women's Library in Detroit, which is holding an event to celebrate its second anniversary tomorrow on Juneteenth, the new national holiday. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Stephen Henderson, as always, thanks for tuning in. Communities all over the country are finding ways to commemorate and celebrate tomorrow's now national holiday, Juneteenth. For those of you who don't know the origins and significance of this day, here's just a little background. June 19, 1865, was the day that U.S. Army troops landed in Galveston, Texas, and told the enslaved people there that they were free. 
This is amid the aftermath of the Civil War. And although President Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation uh, on January 1st, 1863, enslaved people in Texas weren't notified of their freedom until two years later. Well, this year is a milestone in terms of the wide recognition of this holiday and its origins. It's also a really excellent way to celebrate a variety of great work being done within the black community. One such effort is going to be highlighted during a special event at a place that's really special to me tomorrow, the Tuxedo Project, which is the nonprofit that I started in the West Detroit neighborhood where I was born. The Free Black Women's Library Detroit is celebrating its second anniversary, and it's marking the occasion with a free outdoor book exchange at the Tuxedo Project from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. Here to talk more about the Free Black Women's Library is the project's founder, Ola Akinmo'o. Ola, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for saying my name so uh, so well. <laughs> you did a <laughs> yes. good job. I've got great producers who help me out with pronunciations. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> and also with us is the founder of the Detroit chapter of the Free Black Women's Library, Caitlin Durst Rivas. Caitlin, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Yes. So, uh, Ola, let's start with you explaining what the Free Black Women's Library is. Uh, on your website, you describe it as a social art project. That is a wonderful phrase. I love it. So let's let's start there. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. So basically, the library is a social art project um, that features a collection of over 3,000 books written by Black women. And I have also started to carry uh, books by Black non-binary authors as well. And it serves as a community resource, as a literary site, as a space where people can come together and gather and really celebrate and get into uh, the brilliance, the creativity, the diversity, the wide range of Black women's literature that's out there. It travels all around New York City and sometimes outside of New York City and works as an interactive installation. So when the library is installed in a space, all ages, all races, all genders are welcome to come and interact with the installation. So one of the ways that you can do that is that for every book you bring, you get to take a book. And those exchanges can be really exciting. Sorry, I'm in Brooklyn. It's really loud here. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Um, but those exchanges can be really exciting. They can be very interesting. They can be very varied. People can trade comic books for science fiction. People can trade romance novels for books on health and beauty. People can trade poetry collections. Um for books on critical race theory, which is a hot topic right now. So, you know, it's um, it's just a, a welcoming space. Uh, it's a radical space, although I know people kind of overuse the word radical, but it is a space that offers an opportunity for connecting with other people as well as just, like, getting into how exciting literature is and reading and books, so... Yeah, yeah, it's all those different things, yeah. and I'm really excited that um, Caitlin started a chapter in Detroit. 
because I love Detroit. I've been there a couple of times. It's an awesome city. And I know that it's something that uh, Detroit culture, if that makes sense, would yeah. really get into and appreciate. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so uh, Ola, I, I, our first conversation on the show today was about critical race theory and how important that is to shaping uh, conversations about race, conversations about history, conversations about uh, the future, but it also it also reminds me. You're you're describing your project, reminds me of how important it is to use that lens for all kinds of different things. And in this case, you're talking about you're talking about art, you're talking about literature. But there isn't a a, a proper way to acknowledge or celebrate the kinds of literature that you're talking about without using the lens of race. If you don't, then unfortunately in this society, it all gets missed. It all gets kind of swept away and underappreciated. And so, uh, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to hear you describe what you're doing uh, in light of the conversation that, uh, that we just had. Yeah, definitely. I think that's part of what makes this library really special and really unique is that you're getting black women's voices are centered. And that is something that rarely happens. And oftentimes when it does happen, it's from a place of needing and lack. You know, there's lots of incredible, worthy uh, projects and movements that are based around you know, helping and supporting black women, which is extremely important when it comes to like, you know, uh, childbirth, mortality rates, incarceration, domestic abuse, like those things are so important. But I think the thing that's special about the library is that black women are coming from a place of empowerment Mm -hmm. and like teaching and creativity and excitement and pleasure and joy and really like big time freedom dreaming. So there's no sense of lack in the space because it's kind of like you walk into this space and no matter what your interests are, you'll find something, whether it's urban planning or how to make clothes, you'll find something written from a black woman's point of view. And I think that's what makes it really special and really unique uh, because there have been <laughs> a couple of times when I've even met teachers who teach creative writing classes and literature classes who will come to the library and feel kind of, um, I don't want to say embarrassed, but taken aback by mm. the fact that their curriculum, their syllabus, their reading list doesn't really have doesn't reflect a this, of black this women work. authors on their list. Yeah. And, they're, and it's like, wow, look at all these options that I didn't know about because they weren't available to me, because they weren't promoted, because they weren't lifted up as important. So, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, so it's just really important. Having that diversity is really important. You know, being able to see things from different perspectives is really important. I think it broadens your worldview. It helps you become a more compassionate, empathic, understanding person. So, and and everybody loves books. So I think it's um, I think it's an awesome project, yeah, and yeah. I just thank you for letting me talk about it. In sure. Space. Yeah. Uh, so so Caitlin, I want to bring you into the conversation here. Talk about starting the Detroit chapter. 
of this organization and talk about uh, how this project is intersecting with uh, the Tuxedo Project tomorrow. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it's been such a labor of love and joy starting this project. And, um, you know, Ola is super inspiring and I had been following her work with the Free Black Women's Library for a while on Instagram and social media, as well as some other similar projects across the country. Um, And I was in a graduate program where I was, you know, finishing up a thesis that was really about radical self-care for Black women. And it brought in um, a lot of literature, you know, written by Black women, mainly from a Black feminist point of view, but also from a point of view of overcoming trauma, why centering spaces of self-care specifically for Black women and femmes was important. And I just begun yeah, um, kind of building this library internally as I was writing this thesis and I really wanted to do more with it. I really felt like everybody needed to experience um, having these books in their presence, being able to tangibly hold them and see them. Um, so many so many of these books, um, thinking of The Source of Self-Regard by Toni Morrison, um, so many of these books are like so beautiful to just look at and flip through. And of course, seeing um, a Black woman represented on the back cover mm-hmm. or on the front is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so after I was done with my thesis, I really wanted to bring this project into the Detroit community. So I talked to Ola and um, had also found out there was other branches of the Free Black Women's Library popping up around the country. So I knew that there was other opportunities similar to what I wanted to do in Detroit already happening. So I was very inspired and empowered by her and by the other Mm -hmm. folks who are doing similar projects um, Mm -hmm. to start Detroit project so I just did and Juneteenth was around the corner so I was like let's start on Juneteenth because it's such an important day to celebrate blackness to celebrate freedom to remember that black women are at the center and at the corner and at the you know the core of everything um especially social movements and um you know just propagating what it means to be a black person in this world um and so Yeah, I started on Juneteenth very intentionally, and um, it's been two years, really exciting. I've popped up at the Sidewalk Festival, um, popped out at a bunch of conferences um, in Detroit. I've popped up at the University of Michigan um, and quite a other few open-air opportunities just in Detroit neighborhoods. So it's been really beautiful two years, and tomorrow is going to be – you know, one of the first times in really almost a year that we've had a public event because of the pandemic. Yeah, right, (laughs) right, right. Uh, Okay, so uh, Caitlin Durst-Rivas and Ola Akinmo'o, founder of the Free Black Women's uh, Library. Thanks thanks to both of you for being here on Detroit Today. And you can get more information about tomorrow's book exchange at tuxedoproject.com. That's going to do it for us this week. Come back on Monday. We're going to talk with Julie Robner of Kaiser Health News uh, to talk about the recent SCOTUS decision upholding the Affordable Care Act. And we'll talk about the planned merger between Beaumont Health and Spectrum Health and what it'll mean for health care 
here in Southeast Michigan. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.